I will be reading from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Good morning. It is good to see you here. We are always thankful for your presence and certainly thankful to our Heavenly Father who allows us to be here this morning through his goodness, and we are grateful for that. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to Hebrews chapter 11, I'll begin with a few introductory thoughts, and that is this. The world is hurting, and uh, there, there are just a lot of people hurting in the world, and it's unfortunate, but, but it's the reality of sin. Uh, sin hurts. There are consequences to sin. Uh, there's guilt associated with sin, and there is shame in doing wrong. And there's more pain involved when you don't know the solutions to get out of the problem, when you don't know which way to go, and you can't find a resolution. Uh, but if the world is hurting, it makes sense because sin hurts. But why are people in the church hurting? Because they're hurting too. And having talked to numerous Christians, the church is hurting very often just like the world with many differences. You see, our sins have been forgiven. And there is no guilt because sin's removed. And so there should be no shame associated with it either. So why then are people in the church hurting? I'm going to guess it is our topic this morning, and, and that is they don't know that they're loved. They're struggling because they can't believe they've been forgiven. Can't seem to come to the place where they feel like God loves them and they can be what God calls them to be. They can't quite seem to accept and receive God's goodness and the love that he offers. They can't really seemingly think of themselves as being worthy of love. And if they sin... Well, now they believe they're just right back in the state of the world. And so they find themselves struggling. It furnishes us with our topic this morning, and that is you are loved. You are. But if we're going to stop the hurting, then we've got to believe that. And we've got to learn to receive and accept God's love for us. And then we can live accordingly. How can we do that? That's the topic of our discussion this morning. How can we receive God's goodness and God's love? I'm going to give you the very short answer. It is there in Hebrews chapter 11 where you are. And the answer is faith. Ultimately, we're going to have to believe that we are. The book of Hebrews emphasizes the need for faith. It explains what it is. It tells us we should have it. And it goes through these 13 chapters really talking about faith. It's hardly the only book of the Bible that does that. Faith takes up a huge section of Scripture. In fact, in this chapter, verse number 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It really is that which makes the relationship go. And without it, God effectively says here, we can't have a relationship. That's how important faith is. John says in another place, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. What is the victory? It's our faith. 
And so it is so critical and so important. Let's begin here in Hebrews chapter 11 then, talking about faith, what it is, and why we need to have it. Verse number one explains what faith is. In fact, it says this is faith. This is what it is. Now, faith is. That's how the King James opens this verse. Now, faith is. So, whatever follows is, this is faith. And so, faith is explained, first of all, in verse number one. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you begin to define some of these words, it's important to understand that faith is then based on reality. It's based on truth. It's based on knowledge. When you as a Christian use the word faith, you must understand you are not saying, by, the Bible is not saying that faith is guessing. It's not saying that. You, you must not agree with your denominational friends when they say, well, you go as far as you can with what you know, and then you jump out on faith. You have to tell them, friend, I love you, but that's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that faith is based on knowledge, that faith is absolutely certain. In fact, it is as certain as the things which we can see. In fact, that's what he's going to say here in just a moment. This word substance is, is a setting under, a substructure, a support. That's what it says. It says it is the support, the substructure of something that's hoped for. But what does hope mean? You should understand that hope is not wishing. No, hope is different than wishing. You can say, I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had been there. I wish it could have been this way, but that's not hope. The word hope means full confidence and expectation. Another sermon, another day, when we talk about heaven at some point in the future, we won't talk about wishing to go to heaven. Sometimes you hear Christians say, boy, I hope I make it. What they mean is, I wish I make it. But if they understood hope, they would feel and understand so much more to be confident because that's what the word means. Desire plus expectation. It's expecting something. I'm not wishing for it. I know it's going to happen. I'm expecting it to come to pass. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 is not wishing. I know there is a crown of life laid up for me. Not for me only, but to all those who love his appearance. That's hope. It's the expectation. It's confidence. Faith is the hope for, the substance, the undergirding of something that's expected. But it goes on to say the evidence of things not seen. It's a proof. It's conviction. There's evidence for faith. Faith in the Scriptures is as real and as certain as gravity. That's the emphasis of Scripture. It is something that's known and certain and true. And so, the first thing is, faith is explained. It says, now faith is. That's what it is. The second verse says that faith was lived successfully. That somebody or bodies were able to live this out in their life, and they did it successfully. Verse number two says, for by it, by faith, by it, the elders gained approval, or the men of old gained approval. The elder obtained a good report. They gained approval. They were witnesses, to bear witness. That's what the word means. And you can see that in this very chapter. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith. 
They were successful. Who was successful? Verse number four says, by faith, Abel. You mean to tell me somebody lived out a faithful life and was approved of by God? Yes. Who did that? Abel. Genesis 4. When do you and I start talking about faith? Typically, people start in the New Testament. They talk about faith and faith, and they emphasize faith. The Hebrew writer says people have been doing this since Genesis 4. With very little revelation from God, Abel had faith approved of by God, but not just Abel. Noah, verse number 7, and then Abraham, and then Sarah, and then you go all the way through this chapter. At some point, the Hebrew writer will say, time would fail for me to tell you of, and then he'll tell you of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and all of these people. And then it'll tell you some people who's not named. All of these people and myriads of others have lived out this faith successfully. The third thing is in verse number three, faith is understood. In fact, that's what the Word says. By faith, we understand. It tells us again that faith is based on knowledge. It's based on information, that this firm conviction, that's what the Word means, this faith, this firm conviction, this persuasion, by it, we understand something. We perceive, we know, we have it in our minds, we've processed it correctly. What is it that we've processed correctly, that we've come to understand, that we're convicted about? What is that? Look at verse number three. By faith, firm conviction, persuasion, we understand, perceive, come to know what? That the worlds were made by the Word of God. We understand that to be the case by faith. We perceive it. What's this mean? It's not the word cosmos. It's, really, it's mostly associated with the created order, taking chaos and making it orderly and all the physical arrangement. That's not this word. This word is the word aeon or eon, depending. But it, it is the unbroken age of, of time, eternity. That what God made, that the very existence of things, that all of that that is, is by the Word of God. It was framed. It was knit together, woven and made. How? By the Word of God. By that which is uttered out of His mouth. In fact, it's the very thing we're confronted with when we first open the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. We understand that the worlds that were framed were made by the Word of God. That's how the Bible opens. John says something very similar in John chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Bible says that's a matter of faith. In fact, that's how we come to understand it. Let me ask you this. you believe that? Let me pause very quickly and say, don't, don't answer quickly. Don't, don't, don't give the pat answer. You know the one that says, I need to make sure that everybody knows that I believe all the stuff that we say we believe? No, not that answer. I need to make sure I get it out there quickly that I'm with everybody else, and so I'm not out here wondering and guessing. I'm, I'm, I'm certain. I'm gonna, no, I'm not that answer. 
I'm saying you need to be convicted about this. Is that the way you understand it? Is that the way in, about which you are convinced and convicted that the unbroken age, that the very perpetuity of time and space itself, that the, the very eternity was knit together, woven together by God's Word? Is that the way you understand it? Because that's what it says faith does. He concludes, faith concluded at the end of verse number 3. He says, so that the things which are seen were made by things which do not appear. The things that are seen, that is, with the eye, the faculty to see, the ability to see, this, to see this, to, to, to see this, the, the faculty and ability to see, the things which are seen were made, came into existence by, out of, that which is not seen. What the Hebrew writer is saying, what God is saying is, do that. Come to an understanding. Don't waffle back and forth. Stay with it and come to a conclusion. And use what you see to do it. The earth is here. How did it get here? You can see it. The sun and moon and stars are here. How did they get here? You're here. Other people are here. The plants are here. The water is here. Everything's here. How did that happen? Now, what the Scriptures are going to say is, God did that. In fact, it's going to say the things that you see are evidence that they've been made by that which you don't see. And that you and I should come to the conclusion that the one is as certain as the other. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and notice what the Apostle Paul says there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and rather into chapter 5, notice how he talks about these two things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 16, the Apostle Paul says, for which cause we faint now. Now, earlier in the chapter, he's talking about him and the other apostles and prophets, how they're suffering for the cause of Christ. And the fact that though they have been uh, abused and persecuted and all these things, that they have not been overwhelmed or overcome. They're still faithful to God because God is with them. And, and with regards to this suffering, he says, for which cause we faint not. All of this suffering is, is, is one thing, but God's presence in our lives is another. And that's the reason we won't faint. That's verse 16, for which cause we faint not. But then he says this, but though our outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Hold on to the language in Hebrews chapter 11, that the things which are seen were made by things which don't appear. Now listen to Paul talk about an outward man and an inward man. One of them you can see, the other you cannot see. And Paul says they're both realities. Our outward man is perishing day by day, but our inward man, how would you get an inward man? The ones who is not seen made that. The one who is not seen made that. He says that inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. The work of us is far more in exceeding weight and eternal glory. He says, verse number 18, while we look, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, go back, listen to the language of Hebrews chapter 11, the things which are seen were not made by things which appear. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. Why? For the things that are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to use the things which are seen to reason back to the things which are not seen. And what's the evidence? If this is real and I can see it, I can touch it, I can feel it, I know that's temporal. But I know by its existence something's eternal. That which I cannot see is as real as that which I can see. I use the one for the other. It's absolutely certain. It's absolutely true. When we're talking about faith, that's what we're talking about. Paul continues, for we know, verse number one of chapter five, for we know. We don't guess, we don't feel, we don't, it's not a hunch, no, 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 we know. Based on those things, we know that if this earthly house of this tabernacle were destroyed, what earthly house? This body. I can see it. It's getting older. It's wearing out. It's decaying. And if at last it is destroyed, Paul says, not the end of me. Why not? He says, this earthly house, this tabernacle destroyed, we have a building, another building, a house not made with hands. This one, he says, is eternal in the heavens. Ultimately, he will get down to verse number seven and say, we walk by faith. The various discussion in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is evidence. Faith is knowing. Faith is trusting and believing that which is absolutely true. Now, that's not our subject this morning. Someone might say, well, Eric, you were talking about love. True. You were talking about feeling worthy and understanding. Yes. So what does this have to do with receiving love and goodness? Let me ask you this. Who do we use when we talk about goodness? God? Who do we use when we talk about love? God? What book would we use to evidence God's goodness and God's love? Scripture. So you see, the discussion of faith really is a discussion of God's existence and Scripture's inspiration. And if you're going to understand that you're loved, and if you're going to understand that you're worthy of that love, you're going to need to believe God. You're going to need to believe Scripture. Without either of those, friends, you're not going to get there. Why is the world hurting? Sin. What's the solution? God. Scripture. Why are Christians hurting? When they have God and Scripture. It might be a lack of faith. Maybe a misunderstanding of faith. You and I have to be as certain about the one as we are about the other. We cannot waffle on this. It's everything. James says a double-minded man, a two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. To know and feel worthy of God's love, there are three things you must believe about God. Number one, you have to believe in goodness. You have to believe God is good. Notice Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18. A young man runs up to Jesus 
And sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you've probably heard me use the phrase, turn the diamond. I'm not a gemologist. In fact, I don't know anything much about diamonds. I read the little placards like everybody else, cut and clarity and something else, something else. I don't know a thing in the world about that. I just know every time I see it on TV and the little guy, he has this thing, the jeweler, and then he's turning it. Y'all seen that? So that, that's what I get that concept from. And what I'm suggesting to you, Scripture is kind of like that. When you read in Scripture, there are different sides of any discussion that's taking place. And ideally, it'd be helpful if you read all the sides. Because sometimes there are things written and recorded and spoken that appear not to have anything to do with the present conversation you're reading. Mark chapter 10 is one of those instances. This young man, uh, verse number 17, the Bible says of him, he ran, he was gone in the way, speaking of Jesus, he, he, there came one running, kneeled to him, asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I mean, it is a fantastic question, and we've talked about this young, this man in the past. We've stated a lot of good things about him. I mean, after all, he runs, he kneels, and then he addresses Jesus. But interestingly, he addressed Jesus as good master. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Oftentimes, our Lord's responses doesn't seem to just naturally follow the narrative. For instance, he doesn't immediately just answer the question. The Lord asks a question, and the question is this, why do you call me good? Well, what's the Lord's point? Well, there's two points. He gives us one, the implication is the other. Jesus says there's none good but one, and that's God. So by you calling me good, you must understand that I'm God. That's number one. Number two, God is good. Before he ever answers the question, he makes that affirmation. God is good. He could have said any number of things about God he wanted to, but what he said is, God is good. Let me ask you this, do you believe that? Now, I know we say it all the time. In fact, it's become a, one of those, again, a, a nice expression, God is good, and somebody had it all the time. Somebody had it all the time. God is good. It's cute. That don't mean you believe it. Jesus said he is. I don't want you to give a quick answer but you need to answer. You don't need to give the pat answer. No, no. You need to believe that. And if you haven't come to a conviction about that, friends, do the work necessary to do that. You need to believe that God is good if it's going to be a matter of faith for you and an understanding of why you're loved. Number two, you have to believe God is love. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 8, that's what John says. Now, again, Scripture is um, very clear about that. John says in verse number 8, He that knoweth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. We're going through this uh, study on, on Sunday nights about trying to understand the Bible, and here are some tips and, and so forth. Here's an exercise you might want to do, because I don't know, maybe I'll say it later again, but one of the things you want to do when you're reading the Bible is notice what it didn't say. Now, of course, you want to notice what it did say, but you also want to notice what he, what he didn't say. You know, this verse doesn't say God gives love. 
He could have said that. In fact, he did say that. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave. And you could make the case that love gives and love sacrifices. It does all of those things. It's just not what the verse is. It's noteworthy that it didn't say that. It's noteworthy of what it did say. And what it said was God is love. What it's talking about is his very being, his essence, his character, him. He is love. Let me ask you again. Is that what you believe? You and I cannot afford, as we try to have a relationship with God, live with him, understand him, to start on earth and look up toward heaven. We have to start with heaven and look down to earth. When the Hebrew writer was saying the things that were made were made by that which was not seen, he's talking about God's very being, the eternality of God, which means at some point you and I have to go backward to verse number one in our Bible and appreciate the word in the circle it beginning. Because for humanity, there's always been a beginning. There is time for us. Everything about our existence is associated with time. We have a birth time. The doctor stamps us. Boom, he was born at 7.05. We have a day on which that occurred, 7.05 on a Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening. Great. We have a month in which that occurred. It was March the 2nd on 7 o'clock on Tuesday. We had— Time, 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 it's our whole life. There was a beginning question. Take one step backward from the beginning and what do you have? You have God. And so John says, God is love. He's never been anything else. Is that what you believe? Or do you make the mistake that many people make? They get to be a certain age in their life. They've looked around the world and they've seen enough carnage and chaos and evil. And then they start to interpret that evil and that carnage and that chaos in light of their moral compass and their goodness. And then they look out over that evil and that wickedness and that uh, often just terrible things that occur in the world, and then they decide, oh, well, God can't be because this exists. That's not how you come to know God, because God was who he was before any of that existed. And so John says, God is love. Do you believe that? Don't give the quick answer. Don't give the pat answer. Do you believe that? Third thing you have to believe about God is God is truth. In fact, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Now again, he could have said any number of things, and he does in other places. He says his word is truth. He could have said that. I speak the truth. He could have said that, and he does. Titus 1 verse number 2 says we live in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He certainly does speak the truth. He doesn't speak anything else, but it's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the truth. It is God's goodness, it is God's love, it is God's truth that you must believe because that's what's going to make you understand you're worthy of love. But now listen, you shouldn't believe any of that if there's not evidence for it. 
So I'd like to share with you four evidences as to why you should believe those things. Evidence number one, creation. Creation evidences God's goodness. Genesis 1, 1 through 31, the very creation that we read about. Now again, remember that God is eternal and therefore he didn't have to make it, but he did. And in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 12 down to verse number 18, the prophet says with regards to the creation of the world that God made it and he did not make it in vain. He didn't make it void. He made it to be inhabited. It is right then to say that God made it with us in mind. And it doesn't take anybody that long to see that. He made it beautiful. And you and I as humans, it's part of our nature, our, our very essence to appreciate beauty. And so we get to look at the mountains, the oceans, the stars, nature. But he didn't just make it beautiful. It's not just aesthetic. He made it functional. You and I appreciate that the oceans are here and they do what they do. The water cycle works and the gravity and the alignments and the planets and the rotation and all of these things are functional. We reap the benefit of that. The lungs are great. The oxygen is available. God did that with us in mind. There's food here. There's shelter here. There's animals here. There's things here. How did they get here? God did that. Why, goodness? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He did that. He didn't just make it beautiful. He didn't just make it functional. He made it safe. We live far more without natural disasters than we do with them. He made it with us in mind to direct us to him. Psalm 19:1. the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. We can see by the things which are seen, we know that it was made by that which was not seen. Number two, God copied himself. Well, it's a stretch, I understand. I could have said he made us in his image. I get that, but it was for alliteration's sake. And so we had creation, and now we go copy. One preacher understood it. Thank you. But God made us. When you read Genesis 1, 26, 27, I hope you're reading that in the way that God intends for it to be understood because the Bible says, and God said, let us make man in our image, one, after our likeness, two, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the birds and over the creeping thing and over all the earth. And God did that. So God created man in his own image, created he him. Male and female created he them. God did that. The Hebrew writer, that very book, chapter 12 and verse number 9, refers to God as the father of spirits. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, Paul says, we are his offspring. What evidence is God's goodness and God's love? What evidence is that God is good? Creation. What evidence is that God is good? He made us in his image. He copied himself. He gave us his very image. But then thirdly, the cross of Christ. Why should you believe the cross? John chapter 3 and verse number 16, the one we had read, 
God so loved the world. Please don't miss the word so. It's intended to intensify. It's intended to help us understand. It wasn't just he loved. It was that he so loved. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know that's not the only John 3, 16 that talks about God's love. In 1 John 3 and verse number 16, you'll find these words. John says there of our Lord, hereby perceive we the love of God. In fact, in the King James, it says, hereby perceive we the love of God, but the of God is in italics. So if we read it without the, the, the italics words, it would just say this, hereby we perceive love. What is your baseline understanding for love? What would you use to try to help somebody understand? Now listen, you don't know what the word loves me, but let me explain it to you. Here's how you understand love. Here's how we do that. What would you use? I can tell you what Scripture uses. Hereby we perceive love because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does Scripture use as the baseline for understanding love? The cross. That Jesus laid down his life, and gave his life for us. But that's not all. In chapter 4, in verse number 8, John says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And then he says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be the, he sent the son to be the propitiation for our sins. Twice in the book, John says, here is how you understand love. How do you do it? On the one hand, look at the second member of the Godhead. The word became flesh and gave his life for us. On the other hand, look at the actions of the first member of the Godhead. The father sent his son. In both instances, he says, this is how we understand it. The cross is how we understand God's love. You could look at what he did. You could look at when he did it. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says he did this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You could look at why he did it. Matthew 20, 28, he is going to redeem us, give his life a ransom for us. These things evidence God's goodness, creation, his image, and the cross evidence God's goodness and God's love. And then fourthly, the canon, Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's literally breathed out by God. The very thing the writer in Hebrew says, so that the things which were made were made by that which doesn't appear, and it was spoken by the Word of God. That's how they came into existence. And that very Word revealed God's mind to us. It's profitable 
for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished under every good work. There are three aspects to that study. There is revelation, God making known his mind, and then there's inspiration, how the speaker who to whom he made his mind known spoke that accurately, penned that correctly, and then preservation, how God oversaw, superintended, providentially brought it down to us. God did that. As a result of that, we can know him, we can grow up in him, and we can go and do his will. Creation, his image evidences goodness. The cross evidences his love. The canon evidences his truth. You just have to believe this. What does this have to do with your being worthy, friends? All of that is why God loves you. You have to believe God. In order to know and feel you are worthy of his love, as we talk about worth, it's important not to confuse value with worth. The idea of value centers around what someone is willing to pay for something. It's not the same as worth. In fact, value can fluctuate. Imagine, if you will, that we were at an auction and somebody held up a violin. Uh, we were in a, a, a marriage. Um, um, we were in a marriage. It wasn't really a class, but we were watching a video of someone doing a marriage seminar. And at some point, the speaker brought out a violin. And the violin was beat up and worn. Strings were, were kind of broken. And, and he said, I'm going to pass this around, and you can share and take a look at it. And then he went to hand it to the, late, the first person in the audience there. And as he got down, he kind of did like this. And he, right before he gave it to her, he said, he said, this is a Stratosteris violin. And he says, this is valued at $100,000. And so I'm going to give it to you and then pass around. You should have seen the lady. And, and at first she was just going to take it, but then it looked like they were passing a baby. I mean, he and her hands were, they weren't shaking, but they were under there. If we were at an auction, you can see value because let's say we held up that buy land and somebody said, I'll give you $100,000 for it. And then somebody else said 120,000. And he said, We got 120,000. Anybody else? 130,000, 140,000. Do you see what's happening to this? Has anything changed about the violin? How did it go from 100,000 to 140 so quickly? What if we got up to 200,000? What if we reached 1.5 million? What is this violin? Well, it's only as valuable as somebody is willing to pay. Suppose he said, I got it for 100,000. Can I hear 101? And somebody said, nah, fam. I give you 85 on a good day. It's only as valuable as someone is willing to pay for it. Here's what happens. People confuse value with worth. We say sometimes, and we do this to ourselves, we say things like, we are not worthy of God's love. We are not worthy of God's grace. It's actually not true. No, we are. In fact, several things related to that are true. When we spoke of God being independent of his creation, that God's character is eternal, 
And if the argument is made, well, we didn't do anything to get God to love us. We didn't do anything to get into God's good graces. Those things would be true. But it wouldn't say a word about our worth. It would only say something about God's eternal character. How could we do anything to get God to be good toward us when God is just good? And what effect would we have on his goodness if God is a good before day one and we don't come along till day six? Well, you're right. We didn't do anything to get God to give us his grace because God was gracious before he made us. And we didn't do anything to warrant God's mercy because God was merciful before he made us. And we didn't do anything to get God to love us because God is love. All true, but it says nothing about our worth. We are worthy of God's love because our worth is inherent, and that's the nature of worth. Worth, unlike value, is intrinsic. It doesn't change. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where our worth comes from. When God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, so God created man is in, in his image, that was our worth. And that worth does not change. In fact, Jesus said, it's invaluable. In Matthew 16 and verse 26, Jesus asked the question, what is a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Please answer the question as best you can in your own mind. What is it that a man would give in exchange for his soul? I can tell you what a man will give in exchange for this violin. In this illustration, if the violin, uh, uh, a person wins at 150, sold $150,000. I can tell you what he will give in exchange for it. We'll take the violin. We'll give it to you. We'll take your $150,000. We'll take that. And we have exchanged. I know the value of the violin. Question, what will a man give in exchange for a soul? The Lord's point is, you don't have that much. The Lord's point is, you can't afford that. Well, Lord, what if I had everything? Wouldn't matter. You couldn't give the world for a soul because a soul doesn't have value. Can't be exchanged. It has worth, intrinsically so. Can't pay for it. God said as much in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, when he crowned us with glory and honor and set us over the works of his hands. But it's not all. The very fact that the word would become flesh indicates we have worth. The very fact that the word would become flesh and then die for us indicates we have worth. Worth is not determined by physical things. And so it's one of the reasons we struggle. Our struggles often begin in childhood and they continue into adulthood. And if you add sin and consequence to the mix, we can think and feel unworthy of love. We struggle because we are conditioned to believe worth is physical. Our weight, our height, hair, flesh tone, education, career choice, accomplishments, failures, good deeds, these determine our worth. 
We're taught these things in childhood, and then they're reinforced in every area of life. Starts in childhood, and then we go down to the playground. Time to play sports. Oh, I don't want so-and-so on my team. We aren't picked. I don't have any worth. Or we are picked. Boy, look how much I am worthy. Look at how that, look at me. I was picked first. It doesn't stop there. No, there's beauty pageants. There's talent shows. There's chess clubs. There's choruses. There's theater. There's computers. We are taught, programmed, and then sent out into the world to find the thing, the group, the club, the activity that will determine and validate our worth. Physical features don't determine our worth. We struggle because we believe our contribution determines our worth. They have a saying in business and in sports. The saying is this, added value. In fact, that's what the companies look for. They ask the question before they hire, why should we hire you? What value will you add to the company? You sometimes hear of athletes in these uh, contract disputes with the owners and the management, and, and they're sitting behind closed doors, and they've done their analytics, and they have their, 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 all of the things that they've tracked, and your, 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 what you've done, and what you failed, and where you're good, and where you're not. And in the contracts talks, they ask, why should we pay you that? What value do you add to the team or to the organization? You will notice, first of all, that the word value is being used, not the word worth. But secondly, this is legitimate in business and in sports. Because in business and in sports, the outcome is what's important. Money is being made or money is being lost. And so value in that context becomes very important. But third, it fails miserably if you apply it to family. Try it. Go home this afternoon and sit around with your family at dinner while you're breaking out the chicken and the potatoes or the steak and the potatoes and the vegetable, while you're sitting around preparing the table and everybody gets down, everybody gets their drinks and everybody sit down, just go around and start polling each person and ask them, now why should we love you? <laughs> what value do you bring to the family? But that's what's taught. When do you want to start teaching your children this concept? Because that's what we're taught. Why should we keep you? You see, the, you see the, the family with the beautiful little baby in the nice little basket, and they're sitting there on the table, and the husband and wife discuss, now, why should we keep this? What value? Why, why should we pay for you? Why, 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 why should we sacrifice for you? Why should we keep giving you our money? What value do you bring? But you know, when we leave our families and grow up and then have families and then we come to the church family, you know, we bring the same thought. Why should we weep with you? Why should we pray for you? What value do you? Why, why should we rejoice with you, visit you, serve you, help you, sacrifice for you, support you? What value do you add to the church family? Amazingly, families don't talk about value because they know worth. We struggle because we're conditioned to believe our ability to obey rules determine our worth. 
even inadvertently, parents can treat their children like that. Boy, if you don't, come here, you did so well. Somehow the child begins to appreciate that when I do good, they really love me. And when I mess up, boy, they scold me and just, you know what? If I do good, I get hugs. If I do good, I think I'll try to do good. And so off we're running. I don't mean it's intentional. I just mean it happens. You know, teachers can do that to us. Spouses do it to each other. Children do it to their parents. Right after they get something, I love you so much. <laughs> You're the best parent anybody could have. <laughs> right when they put the money in the bank. Employers can do it. Society does it. We do it to God. Following God's commands is tied to some things. It's tied to whether or not Jesus is our Lord. Luke 6, 46, Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If I'm your Lord, then obey me. If I'm your Lord, it's tied to that. It's tied to whether or not we love God. John chapter 14 and verse number 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. But you know, that's never reversed. Things that hurt us and cause us to think incorrectly. And that's exactly the point of Scripture. We grow up in those environments. We go out into the world. It's reinforced. We even come into the Lord's body. And again, it could be reinforced. And pretty soon, we're thinking the wrong things about God. A lot of people want to know, is God good? Is God loving? Is God truthful? But it's not just that we think wrong about God, we think wrong about ourselves. Through that process, we began to believe, I'm not worthy. I'm not worth much. I'm not very useful. I'm not very good. I don't know. I'm just kind of going along. We think wrong about others. Boy, they're better than I am. Everybody is, after all. Or they're much worse than I am. Or they're all evil. You know that. You can't trust anybody because there is no goodness in the world. Or we think wrong about the world. It's true what they say. It's permanent. It'll always be here. Or it's just meaningless. We think wrong about eternity. We fear it. It's unknown. It's trouble. I don't want to die. There's no way. Please don't live. The whole point of coming to Jesus is to learn those things correctly. Ask yourself how much Scripture emphasizes teaching us about God who he is, what he does. How much is about you, who you are, how valuable and how worthy you are, what God did for you? What about others? Teaches you about them. Are you better? No. Are you worse? No. Are you all the same? Yes. Teaches you about your soul. It seeks to change your mind, to renew your spirit. That's what the whole point of Scripture is. God loved you before you were created. That's why you're worthy. You were worthy before He even made you. You already had His love. How in the world can you have His love before He even makes you? Go back to day one. Before the beginning, what was God? God is love. 
you didn't come along today. Six, he loved you before because he's love. Really has nothing to do with you. It's who he is. I, I, would, I would surmise that in a small way you did the same thing if you're a parent. If you could remember back, some of your children are now uh, a little further down the road of life. But if you can remember back to when you first heard that you were pregnant, did you start loving your child then? Several years ago, I went into a visit a sister. She had a baby. I went in to see her. Her husband was there, and we were talking. I was working on some material for a book, and so I asked her a question. I said, when did you start loving this baby? Now, the baby is right there. I can see the baby. She's there, her husband there, and she looked as if I was trying to trick her. She was like, what you mean? When did I start? And so she paused for a while. She thought, and then she said, the moment I found out I was pregnant. Is that true for everybody in here who's ever found out that their wife was pregnant and the mother who found out she was pregnant? Is that when you start loving your baby? You can nod if you don't mind. Your neck works. So you loved your baby before your baby could love you back? You loved your baby before your baby could add value to the family? You loved your baby before your baby could walk, could talk, was potty trained. When your baby was costing you sleepless nights, you loved your baby. When your baby couldn't do anything but cry for a bottle and wet a diaper, you loved your baby. Is that what you're telling me? And if you can do it, then can't God, before he made the room for his children, he loved you before you were created. And he loved you because you were created. And friends, if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, please remember this. Because he made you, you are worthy of his love. Nothing else is needed. Sometimes when children get frustrated with their parents, and by children I now mean really, 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 really smart teenagers. <laughs> Sometimes they say things like, I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> to which parents want to say, duh. Could you, friends? You couldn't ask. Nobody has to be born. Now, they're usually trying to make a point about something they disagree, but listen, there's something there. The fact that you had them, doesn't that make them worthy of your love? The very fact that you did it. We know babies are no accident, despite what people say. Nope. We know how babies come here. That's what you did it. You brought me here. I'm worthy of your love. You did that. In fact, when we see babies without love, don't we all get concerned? You ever seen a child walking around by itself or himself or herself in a public place and you don't see any big people with the child? The baby's not even yours, but don't you stop? And you start looking like, ho, 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 ho. If you're my wife, we're going to follow. <laughs> Eric, get the other side. 
like the raptors. We're going to follow this baby. You get aisle one, I'm on aisle two. And look, look through the clothes. You still see them? You still see the baby? We're going to follow. We want babies to be loved by, they're worthy of that. In fact, I was just out yesterday. I was just out yesterday in a public parking space. I was talking to one of my daughters. We're having a conversation. We look up in the mirror, and there's a young guy. He's probably 13, 14, maybe 12, 8, 10, somewhere in there. <laughs> you see how good I am with numbers. There's 5,000 people here this morning. <laughs> but to our eyes, he may have looked like he, he had special needs to our eyes. And about that age, he was walking alone in a parking lot. And because she's my daughter and her mama's daughter, she said, you got your phone? I said, yeah. Well, let's go see if he needs to make a phone call. So we open the door and get out, start walking for him, toward him. And about three or four steps in, about four adult people come out. And I make eye contact with one of the ladies, and she say, I got him. Thank you. And we're like, yeah, you got them then. What are we saying? Hey, friends, let me ask you a question. If that's true of us, and God made us in his image, doesn't that make us worthy of his love? People are hurting because sin hurts. Christians are hurting. But the hurting can stop. It's why God sent Jesus. And if you will believe and trust God, if you've never obeyed the gospel and you will come to Jesus, Jesus is God's solution and manifestation of his goodness and his love and his truth. And it all says, I love you and you were worthy of my coming to die for you. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? To change your heart and your mind and repent, confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and let God through Jesus give you a fresh start, a new life. If you are his child, your sins have been forgiven. And so there is no guilt. You've already been accepted through the blood of Jesus Christ and cleansed, and so there is no shame. The hurting should have already stopped, but if it hasn't, would you believe that God loves you because God is good and that God loves you because God is love and that God loves you because God is the truth? And if he said it, it's true. And God has said it one way or a thousand ways. I love you. And my son on the cross should evidence that. You are worthy of God's love. And you are loved. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.